Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Eat Sleep Work Repeat. It's a podcast about workplace culture, psychology and life. I'm Bruce Daisley. I'm Ellen Scott. And I'm Matt Cook. Hello. Th- thanks. Nice to be here with you. Have you had a good week? Yeah, busy week, but otherwise good. Just came back from my parents' place and now settled back in. It definitely feels like back to school vibes. It does. Emails are being picked up. Certainly first week of September, I looked in the diary and said, like, oh, I've got to go and do things. This isn't just deep work time. This is actual delivery time. And yeah, it's certainly picking up. Yeah, that's it. I've always had the illusion during August that like, yeah, I think I've mastered my job. I think I've got the hang of this because basically it's just like a sustainable pace of work, isn't it, in August? And then September starts and you just regret every moment of complacency. Well, there are some countries like Spain where they pretty much take off August, which I think is a great mm. idea. We're kind of maybe starting to get that way in, in an informal sense where you kind of know most people will be on holiday, things slow down. But I just quite like the idea of saying, you know what, this is what we do. We're not here. I've seen a few people do that actually on LinkedIn, just saying our business is shutting down for a month. I love it. I think it makes sense because we, like you say, we're practically doing that already. Like everyone just sees August as a write-off month. Nothing's going to happen. It's so interesting working in American companies with with Southern European offices because American companies, so everyone in Italy and Spain has gone on holiday. Pretty much they agree amongst themselves, someone will come to the office each day. And if these video calls, one person will attend those back-to-back video calls, pretend that someone's there, but no one's there. And so what you often get, American firms are like, okay, can you get the the master plan from the Italian office? Can you get this? There's no one in the Italian office. There's no one. <laughs> yeah, the Italians have definitely got it right. But it's um, it's an interesting. I remember someone I know worked at Spotify, and uh, Spotify, the guy who ran Spotify, try. He said, "I'm going to educate the New York office, the American office, how to do summer like Swedish people." And I loved that. I loved the fact that the cultural exchange was uh, was going from intense to more balanced. I, I liked. I liked that. Well, that brings me kind of nicely onto something that's definitely stuck out for me this week is the world's values survey which is essentially how different countries view work and it's interesting you mentioned sweden because sweden was the only country less likely than the uk to say that those who don't work are lazy so essentially perceptions on those not working the sweden is one of the only countries to say that actually we don't think that people who don't work are lazy other than the UK. And it's just really fascinating when you start to dig into it 
one of the things that came out was essentially people in the UK saying that work isn't that important in their life. They were uh, the least likely of all countries surveyed to say that work is important. Even you mentioned like Spain and Italy, they were still up there kind of in the 90% of people agreeing that work is important. And the UK was down in like 73%. So there's a real interesting kind of attitudes that vary by country in terms of kind of this world's value survey from, yeah, King's College London. There was a big generational difference as well. Now, I can't remember exactly what I was saying, but millennials have completely changed their view. Yeah, that's what I found most fascinating because you might assume that generation to generation attitudes will shift around work and that we are seeing more of a relaxing with each generation in terms of whether work's important. The millennial chart just absolutely crashes, which I think is fascinating. So in kind of early 2000s, millennials believed that work was important. And there was some commentary about whether that coincided with hustle culture and kind of this grind mindset. And then it just absolutely drops off a cliff. With millennials shifting from believing that work was important to not believing that it's that important. And yeah, Ellen, I think it's really interesting because it's not just, okay, well, each generation thinks it's less important. Something with the millennials has happened in the last 20 years. Wow, I'd love to know more about that, right? Is that like a COVID thing? Is that like we've just lost a couple of years of living life and so it's forced to reappraise? Or is it just a reflection that work just doesn't seem like a very good transaction anymore? I'd love to know what the story behind that is. Yeah, it seems, because it's not just the last few years, certainly that chart, it seems like it is dropping basically from 2009 when 40% of millennials agreed that work should come first, even if it means less time. So 40%, pretty high, dropping pretty much 10 years later to only 15%. So, I mean, post-financial crash, we've basically seen that uh, capitalism isn't necessarily the best system. And certainly with younger generations, there's whole TikTok trends around uh, communism and socialism, partly memes, but also kind of partly a response and an angry response to the financial situation that these generations are in. And probably if you think about millennials being sold the idea of hustle culture and grind culture, that if you work hard, you can get it. And then realizing that people are basically saying, well, you shouldn't have bought avocados and you could have bought a house might be the reaction that we're seeing. Yeah, I think anecdotally, as a millennial, I feel like so much of us have been defined as the burnout generation. And that I think has 100% hit home of, we worked this hard, what if we actually got at the end of it? We just feel shit <laughs> and our mental health is in tatters. So of course, we're now like, well, what's the point of it? Like it doesn't feel as important. And I think we're starting to listen to and learn from Gen Z and going, actually, they might be right about anti-work and maybe taking it less seriously as well. It's, I, I find it so interesting. I've been to a, a few gigs this month where I've just started noticing things that loads of Gen Z kids wear earplugs when they go to gigs. Have you seen this phenomenon? Mm. I I don't know how I've not observed it before. I'm just, I mean, it just seems so wise. It seems like I was just astonished. I was like, as soon as I started noticing it, I started noticing it everywhere, but just, it was like, um, it was being presented with a generational shift right before my eyes. And I love those moments where something has forced you to reappraise 
your own attitudes to, towards something by seeing something that you haven't seen before. I think also earplugs are quite cool now. I keep getting promoted these like jazzy gold ones mm. and they look all fashionable. So it's definitely becoming a thing. Yeah, I think 21 Jump Street captured the attitude shift the best, in my opinion, in terms of kind of pop culture references. So in the film, you have Channing Tatum um, and Jonah Hill, I think, going back to school as undercover cops. And Channing Tatum, kind of classic jock build, was the cool kid when he was at school. He's trying to say all the cool things that you should do to go to school. Right, We're going back to school. We want to be cool. So don't wear both of your rucksack straps. You've got to just have one rucksack strap. It's got to be really low. Don't care about anything. Don't care. You know, it's, it's cool not to care. And then they get to school and they're faced with people being like, you don't care about the environment. Everyone's wearing the two straps. And it was just this really clear, stark difference that I was, you know, as someone who went to school when you had to have your rucksack super low or you weren't cool. I feel like it just kind of captured that. And if they made it now, I'm sure there'd be earbuds in that film going to gigs. I think that's such a good analogy for work as well, because I think the picture of what is cool in terms of work and especially what success looks like would be radically different now. I think even like 10 years ago, I would see, you know, a cool business lady like running her own company and hustling and doing all of that as a really impressive thing. Now, I think we look more on that as quite a sad thing of, you know, they don't have any time to enjoy life and to rest and relax and do things other than work. But it's fascinating how much that shifted in quite a short amount of time. Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because there's, there's still so much of that hustle porn out there. But like you say, the, there's as many people who look at it as quite tragic now, as as aspirational and desirable. It's really interesting how that's got a whole cycle and... Uh, it's definitely changed perspective. Yeah. One of the things that, again, came out of the uh, what the world thinks about work report was that the UK ranks relatively low for the belief that hard work brings a better life. And I just think that kind of sums up the attitudes a little bit that if I work hard, it isn't necessarily going to result in anything better. So partly why bother? You know, we've talked previously about discretionary effort. Why put in more effort than I'm being asked to. But I think then kind of coinciding with that are really positive shifts around what success looks like, redefining success, not only in terms of money, wealth, fame, the, the typical capitalist traits, but redefining success as more time with my family, you know, abundance in terms of time, in terms of the pleasures that and hobbies that I enjoy spending my time with. On the subject of that, I was really heartened this week to see that Cambridge County Council, um, who were doing a test of the four-day week, and they were they were subject to a ministerial threatening. They were told that they were going to be at the receiving end of legal action by the government if they unless they back down. And they've persisted. They announced this week that they're going to carry on despite the legal threats against them. Um, they're going to carry on with a four-day week. And the, the bit in the coverage I saw, I've linked to, to the article in the show notes, but the, the bit of the coverage that I was really taken with is that – and I guess it's top of mind, you know, um, staff shortages in public sector jobs. But they said that uh, nine out of 10 public sector jobs were struggling to hire people at the moment. And by offering a four day week, they felt that it was going to be a better way to attract people, a better way to retain people. And look, you know, anyone who's been following the stories in the UK this week about 
the prison break. Largely, it appears that the prisoner escaped because there was no one on duty. There was no, there was no one keeping an eye on things. So using the four-day week in a quite strategic way and say, saying we're measuring it seems to be incredibly timely based on all of those other trends that were spotting. And it's really encouraging to see, but also it makes total sense because they're right. People now aren't just asking for, I want a really massive salary if that comes at the cost of working all hours of the day and being really stressed and overwhelmed, people do want and value four-day week, flexible working, anything that will give them more balance. I might be about to quote our own podcast. I either saw something or actually, Bruce, you said this, but there was an organisation who noticed that their competitor had done a return to office mandate and was basically just on LinkedIn messaging all the people from their company saying, hey, you can work flexibly. Why don't you come here? And it is, you know, it can be such a huge, huge pull. So it's, it's, yeah, it's really interesting to see Cambridgeshire Council acknowledging that and trying to implement it. Although I think one of, I read one of the reasons that Michael Gove was saying that we shouldn't be doing this is, you know, is this the best way to spend taxpayers' money? So I haven't seen from Cambridgeshire Council about whether bins will still be collected on Fridays. Or whether, you know, are there still people to get in touch with or how that works? Because the uh, slick, oiled bureaucracy of local council uh, doesn't always run so cleanly, at least not necessarily in Tottenham, where I am. Although, actually, shout out to Harry. Same in East Ham. Our bin went missing and we didn't get it back for quite some time. I relate. But the evidence-based approach, I think, is interesting. You know, if they can push back and say, well, rather than base this on traditional views that aren't rooted in data what we're seeing is when we've run this and when other companies have run it that you know we're still able to do the same amount of work we're still able to get things done and we're able to recruit and retain talent i think that'd be really interesting Mm. to see i think the concrete stuff is the way to go as well because there's still this reputation of four-day week and flexible working being quite airy fairy idealistic just being like a bit of a soft touch. So actually bringing in that evidence, I think is the way forward. Although I'd often wonder how much evidence is needed mm. because there's so much, there is a lot of evidence out there and we've talked about it before, not just taking a blanket approach to culture. It's It feels like there's enough evidence to at least test it with your own culture and try and build a culture around it. Certainly enough compared to the opposing data we're seeing around you know, employee engagement issues across the world around retention issues. It feels like there's a mountain of evidence for reasons to try the four-day week or at least other approaches to work that aren't just rooted in our post-industrial uh, one-size-fits-all system. And on the subject of sort of returns to offices and the debate about how this all works, did you see the story this week which was an organization that you'd have thought would be quite progressive on these things, but it was Grinder, the um, the hookup app. And it was, they'd been the latest firm to insist on a return to office mandate. Now, look, it, was, it seemed superficially fairly modest. It was two days a week in the office, compulsory. But the, the way that they'd framed it was they'd said, I think this is, you know, we're going back what, till March 2020, they'd framed it that people needed to be in the office two days a week and needed to live nearby. One of the consequences of it was that I think 45% of the company were fired because they didn't return. They didn't come back. But specifically, one of the things that has been highlighted along the way about 
hybrid working, remote working, is that it is frequently a, a slightly less visible, but a, a significant diversity and inclusion issue. Um, there's been some research out in the US saying that a lot of younger women or people of color in the US have found that actually by not being in the office, they're less exposed to microaggressions or, or just um, objectification. And one thing that came from the Grinder research was that all of the trans employees, they had eight trans employees, I think, all of them were fired in the change. Now, I think that was because they found themselves geographically unable to, to move in. But I suspect trans employees, where you live and your lived experience of your neighborhood is a really big part of, of living a, a fulfilling and, and safe life. So it, it's, you know, quite often we forget that remote work is a diversity inclusion issue. And I thought that this was a really totemic story because an organization that you'd have thought lived and breathed on the inclusivity of, of its, its product and what it does. I, I was really surprised with that turn of, of events. I don't understand why they did it. I know that might seem like a silly question, but I just don't get the logic of giving up such a significant percentage of but you know, possibly brilliant people, just to enforce this two days a week thing. I don't understand the thinking behind it. Have they gone into why at all? I haven't seen in the articulation of it them coming out and saying it. But you know, it, it goes back to this idea that people have got this romanticised version of what happens in offices. You know, offices, even when people are now mandated to come back, are filled with people on headphones. People with filled, you know, filled with people on headphones doing Zoom calls. It's like the idea that somehow these a conga line of people partying and conversing and exchanging great ideas is such fantasy for, for the large part. I think. And one of the things that stuck out to me from this uh, news story was the supposed coincidence that this happened two weeks after the staff unionizing. And yeah, it just feels like a pretty stark coincidence, especially across the US when you look at tech firms clamping down on unionization, really kind of quite authoritarian approaches at times. So I thought that was, mm. uh, you know, pretty interesting coincidence. And one of the things to your point, Bruce, around the employees kind of a sense of safety, I love the fact that you've picked up on kind of the diversity, equity, inclusion perspective. And I think the tragic timing of this all is we're seeing across so many companies, this type of position, especially heads of diversity, equity, inclusion, just being let go due to the economic climate. And sadly, it's typically one of the first roles to be let go. And it's so crucial, you know, at forming the inclusion, the sense of belonging that enables everyone, not just those deemed as, you know, marginalized groups, but everyone in the company to be able to build that sense of belonging and, and work really well. And, you know, when we think about the US, particularly with the healthcare system, for some of the trans employees, I think one of them who would have lost access to a doctor who was able to give them the healthcare they need. Now, this is a this is a healthcare issue as well. If I have to geographically move to somewhere in the US where the doctor can deny me my healthcare, then that is wow. you know an a unprecedented decision that you know we're very fortunate to not have to make in the UK. 
So something that I've been reading and looking at this week is there's a piece on Stylist under the extra paywall section about, um, it was titled, what happens when you're out of office doesn't mean anything. But it got into the kind of difficulty of if you're, you've been working somewhere for a while and you've overworked and you've responded to emails, how difficult it is to then claw back your boundaries and go, actually, I'm not going to answer emails at the weekend. I'm not going to work overtime because suddenly that's seen as a really like lazy, shocking, quiet quitting, etc. when it's just basic stuff. I think I definitely relate to that personally because I felt like the only way I could really instate healthy boundaries with work was to get a new job. It didn't feel like a positive, like possible thing to be in my old job and just make quite a radical change. I feel like that would have been frowned upon or looked down upon. I've seen normally two ways it happens. You leave your job and you go somewhere new and you mm-hmm. state that these are parts of my signing contract or it has to get to a healthcare issue that yeah. it's got so bad that I have an official quote unquote reason to now put in place boundaries. But yeah, I completely agree with you that it's very, very difficult to try and reinstate them, at least on an individual level. Certainly if you're working organizationally and leadership is brought in from a cultural perspective to building boundaries in order to facilitate better work-life balance, you know, better health, that can be really, really powerful and impactful. But yeah, I, I feel a lot of sympathy for people trying to do it at an individual level if they're in a system that is pushing back or doesn't uphold the similar values. 100%. Because how can you fight back against kind of the tide of an entire workplace culture if it's expected and everyone's doing it? It's very, very difficult to be like, I'm the one person who won't do that because it's not healthy. But even I think if you're not in a culture like that, but if you've built up that reputation on an individual level, if you for a long time have been overworking and people pleasing and putting loads of time and effort into work that maybe you shouldn't have been doing, it's then next to impossible to put in healthy boundaries without someone noticing and kind of calling it out or that not happening but you thinking in the back of your head oh my god everyone's judging me and thinking I'm lazy and terrible yeah I mean the the cultural norms that people find themselves part of I think what you've said there is often people's only choice I, I worked somewhere that had an overwhelming torrent of emails at the weekend and it was always cited when people resigned they said and it's so interesting because what they're effectively saying is you know what I don't even feel like I can, I can opt out of that. I can't watch emails happening all day and and not respond because I guess what it does is it forces you to to choose between someone who takes pride in doing their job well and then it appears that the model of doing your job well that you're being presented with is replying to the boss's emails all weekend. It's like, well, I can't reconcile those two things. I either have to go and find myself somewhere else. And it just demonstrates really that those toxic cultures, it's very difficult to opt out. You know, it's very difficult to set boundaries unless the organization you're part of is a is a participant in those boundaries exactly that i think matt's point of if it comes from the top down amazing that would be fantastic if you could see that a company was actually making those 
big scale changes, like actively saying we don't send emails out of working hours, etc. But that seems to be such a rarity, at least in my experience. And it often seems like even workers saying this is a problem for me or mentioning in their exit interviews, it's still not seeming to be taken as a as a priority or as a serious thing. Yeah, you can make change at a team level, which I think is really useful because sometimes we can get paralyzed by thinking, well, I can't change it on my own, but also I don't have the power to change it at an organizational level. But even at a team level, you know, if you're a manager, you can do so much to build different social norms within your own teams. Over the pandemic, we were working with a company who were noticing that people were working longer and starting work earlier, just simply because they could. They woke up, they were near their laptop, and they just started work earlier. So we were looking at trying to create kind of rituals across the company to build in new traditions. So we started to talk about kind of leaving loudly. So when you were in the office, you would notice people starting to filter out, you'd notice people leaving, and it kind of gave you a signal that, oh, you know what? Maybe I'll leave too. I'm now going to be the owner in the office. This can wait. But you didn't get those signals virtually. And in fact, you know, when you're working from virtually now, even post-pandemic, you still don't get those signals. So we were talking about leaving loudly, trying to get team leaders on Slack or on Teams to just post to their teams saying, I'm leaving now. You know, it's 4 p.m., it's 5 p.m., whenever it happens to be, just kind of setting that behavior as something that could be followed and I still think kind of that idea of leaving loudly applies definitely now and can start to have an impact, at least at that team level. I love that. And you're so right. Like the power of managers and smaller teams to make those changes is huge because I'm very lucky to have a manager who, if she sees I'm online at 6 p.m., she will just Slack message me and be like, go home, leave. Like, What are you doing still online? Which is exactly what I need. So it's very powerful. We've got a, a guest that we, we should introduce now. Now, one, one of the things that I think has been the trend throughout all of the discussion of the last few years is a real absence of data, a real absence of, of evidence and substance. And as a result of that, quite often we find ourselves seeing someone intrude with their opinions. There was, there was a, I know you're a heavy Twitter user, Ellen, so maybe you saw that hat guy who was all over social media this week who was basically saying that young people have chosen to become lazy and uh you know and and actually there was there was nice commentary on it on it basically oh, you yeah. know identifying that this was the perspective of the one percent that they see us as like workers who need to do their bidding but it, the challenge of of his perspective was that because there's no evidence to to push back and substantiate things um it's a void and so one person's opinion appears to have validity and that's why to today's guest is i think such a a welcome contribution to this debate libby sander is an assistant professor of organizational behavior at bond university in australia and she spent time really trying to get her head around and to understand the impact that working in offices actually has on us. So, so so often we hear this call for us to be back in the office two days a week, but do we actually do better work in the office? And how does the psychological impact of the office impact us, maybe negatively as well as positively? Here's our discussion with Libby Sander. Libby, thank you so much for joining us. I wonder if, to kick off, you could introduce who you are and what you do. Yeah, so 
My name is Dr. Libby Sander. I'm the MBA Director and an Assistant Professor of Organisational Behaviour, which is a very long title, at Bond University. But I also work closely in industry on my research on the future of work. So I have a whole project around that. I saw you'd done something which I think has been neglected till now. You spent some time looking at how the environment we work in has an impact on our psychological state. And I'd love to hear what you found. Absolutely. So that was the basis of my PhD research. And I think it's really timely, as you said, Bruce, because there's a lot of talk about, are we all back in the office five days a week? Is it two days a week? Is it fully remote where I'm living in a hut in Costa Rica overlooking the beach Um, or, or some combination of those? And in fact, What we really need to be thinking about is what's the psychological state we need to do different types of work? Because in modern knowledge work, that varies across the course of the day. Sometimes you're doing deep focused work, perhaps problem solving, writing. Other times, you you know, you're collaborating, you're doing admin work. And so our brain actually requires different spaces in order to do that. And so the thing that I looked at in my research is, well, Let's figure out what the task is and select the state for that. Because one of the things, for example, with the modern open plan office, which I'm sure you've experienced, is it's very noisy. Um, there was an article, I think, this week in the Washington Post about, the you know, the colleagues in the office are hell, right? Um, and so we really need to think about which state do we need to be creative? Okay, here's some spaces that are going to support creativity. Here's a space if we want to do really concentrated work you don't want to be sat next to somebody in an open plan office. And so that's going to vary through the course of the day. And I think it fits really neatly with this idea of a distributed workplace in this modern landscape. So maybe it's at home sometimes, maybe in the office, maybe in a co-working space or a cafe. What did you find about which types of working spaces work for which different styles of work? Like, are there things that we should be doing to our offices and our working from home spaces that would cater to those different needs? When you want to do really focused, concentrated work, you need a space that has basically not a lot of noise, right? So that can be good auditory treatment. It can be, uh, you know, an office where you can shut the door. And in fact, a lot of organisations are starting to bring back furniture that looks like that. It looks like a mini office in the middle of the open floor plan. Um, So that auditory treatment is, is really, really important. But conversely, for creativity, actually a low level of noise is actually really helpful. And so to do creative work, it's often best at the end of the day because we're a little bit tired, our brain is not necessarily following a structure. And so having a space that perhaps has a low level of noise, it's a bit buzzy, can help that. But interestingly, not necessarily in your office. So people often say, I don't know why I can focus in a coffee shop really well. You know, I, I feel like I can just get into the vibe and get into the flow, but in the office I can't. And that's because when you're in the office, your brain is automatically attending to the noise around you because it might be about you or it might be about something that you need to know. Whereas in a coffee shop, that's unlikely to be the case. So you can sort of have this background noise, but you, your brain is sort of screening it out and it, it's actually helpful for creativity. Uh, other times, things like going for a walk, are, you know, extremely helpful as well. 81% more divergent creativity when you're walking. Um, so, you know, it's thinking about what are these different things that we need to do and, and what's a space that might actually support that. That's so interesting. One of the things that's clearly been a big part of the discourse of the last 
four years has been conversations about productivity. And obviously the challenge of productivity is because no one really is able to measure it, everyone is able to bring their own preconceived notions of what they believe is productive and to say, well, this works and this doesn't work. And and the absence of information about that has allowed everyone to fill the void with their own instincts. How would you see the productivity impact of, of these environments? I, I think it's a really important point, Bruce, because firstly, I don't know that it's the right question anymore because productivity is really great at measuring widgets, but it's really not very well suited to a lot of the things that we do in modern knowledge work in terms of collaborating, generating ideas, you know, and all, you know, how do we measure that? So we should be thinking more about effectiveness because it's not, you know, did I have 15 meetings today? Maybe, but what was achieved? Was, was there any point? Did I need to be in those meetings? Um, what were the outcomes of those meetings? So if we shift this focus from just the process, the widget making, the doing to what are outcomes do we need to create? And then, you know, there's huge individual variation and, and variation between companies about, well, how do you want to go about that? Some people are night owls. They work best late at night. Some people like to work early in the morning. So this idea that we're there from eight to five for everybody is just not productive. And then in terms of the effects it has on our brain and our body, we did an experiment in a lab and not much workplace research is done there because it's expensive. It's hard to, you know, extrapolate everything out. And what we found was a causal relationship between standard open plan office noise and a 34% increase in physiological stress. So, you know, if you'd been in the lab, Bruce we, or Ellen, we wire you all up, you know, uh, with various things to measure your physiological stress. So it's an unconscious reaction. Um, so we found that that increased by 34% and your negative mood increased by 25% just because of the open plan office noise. So you might be sitting there thinking, I'm doing a good job, I'm getting these tasks done. But in fact, your body is actually quite stressed and you're in a bad mood. And I don't know about you, but most of my coworkers, when they're in a bad mood, it's not the most conducive state to get things done. Uh, if we look at things like nature and incorporation of plants in the workplace, that reduces our stress levels. It reduces our cortisol. It helps our brain think differently. It um, restores our attentional capacity. So a lot of these things we thought for years, oh, it doesn't matter, just grey carpets, grey you know, dead plants, grow cubicles, but it actually has a profound effect on us. You mentioned briefly the night owl kind of thing, and I wanted to ask about timing because I saw a study recently that said uh, all of us tend to make more mistakes in the afternoons and especially on Friday afternoons. We're just useless at that point. Should we be changing the hours that we work then? Yeah, so that might not augur very well for me, <laughs> being a Friday afternoon here in Australia. And I tend to be more of a morning person. I think having this flexibility in this new landscape we've got since the pandemic is actually brilliant. Because if we shift that focus from widget production from FaceTime, because just because you're in the office, there's no correlation with productivity. When I was a human resources director, this, and I'm sure you've all worked with plenty of people who are in the office, but they're not really achieving very much. So it should be tailored to what type of individual are you? What type of work are you doing? Do you want to come in and start at 7am because that's when it's best for you? Um, but for the people who aren't, you know, those night owls, the, the majority of us that, you know, kind of fall in the middle, yeah, we make a lot more mistakes in the afternoon. Um, it's really 
kind of useless. I think, you know, Spain had a great idea. Let's go home and have a nap. Um, <laughs> it's probably <laughs> good thinking. Now, for all of the talk about the office maybe being sort of noisy and, and disruptive, the one thing that we often do hear the benefit of is of the water cooler moments that take place in the office, the way that I almost see it as like a sort of an exchange of ideas, a, a marketplace of people uh, when we're projecting the version of it, that people are sort of exchange, freely exchanging ideas and, and having discussions. What, what's the insight that you've got about that? Yes, we have looked at, you know, what actually happens when people are together. And so absolutely, that is one of the benefits. You know, humans are social creatures. We want to be together. But I think we need to let go of the idea that it has to be in the traditional office and at particular times of day because those moments tend to happen organically. And there was research done back in the 70s by a guy called Alan that found that if you were more than, you know, basically a few metres from other people, you might as well be on another floor or five kilometres away because those people just don't interact. They don't tend to have those serendipitous moments, which is why we saw the introduction of central staircases in offices to try and you know encourage that to actually happen more. So it can happen, but what research has shown fairly significantly over many years now is that just shoving everyone together in one room doesn't make them collaborate more. It doesn't make them solve problems organically and have all of these lovely conversations to enhance their relationships. It can, in fact, do the opposite. Um, So we have to design the office very, very well with appropriate acoustic treatment and appropriate spaces to fit the different types of work we're doing. And I know LinkedIn have done this with their one of their buildings in San Francisco after the pandemic. They completely refitted it. They've got 75 different types of seating arrangements now, um, paying a lot of attention to acoustics. So they've sort of set up this environment to be, yeah, the space will fit the type of psychological state that you need to be in. And so the idea that we should just call everyone back to the office because they learn better and they collaborate more, it it isn't necessarily true. It really depends a lot on the culture and it certainly depends a lot on the design of that office. Uh, I guess, you know, we're always cautious of not suggesting that there's one size fits all. But with that context, what advice would you give to people and organisations if they're trying to plan these things? What questions should they be asking? What, What advice... Have you got? So I think, you know, slight variations, obviously, for organisations or for individuals. I think as an organisation, it's easy. We've sort of had this amnesia um, since the pandemic and we think it was wonderful. You know, everyone was productive. Everyone was so engaged when they were in the office. And, well, we know that, you know, engagement was at less than a third of employees. Productivity has been declining for decades. So the question to ask is what type of work do we do here? What type of people do we employ here? What is our culture like? And ultimately, where do we need to get to? What do we need to improve? What are these gaps? And as in anything uh, with good organisational management or change management, involve your employees in that conversation. Because I think we saw in the news today that, uh, you know, Grindr did a return to office mandate and 45% of their staff left. Um, So you don't want to be in that position in any organisation. And I think that can be avoided by having these consultations and having the conversation around and giving people flexibility because some people will want to come in a lot of the time, some people may never want to come in, but it's also figuring out how much of your work is synchronous that we need to do it at the same time, how much is asynchronous where people can do it on their own, Um, what's the rhythm of that team. So my advice is come down to the team level. If you want a high-performing team, 
leave a lot of the decision making to them as to how often they get together, you know, where they work most effectively. And, you know, I think just saying across the organisation, everyone must come in for two or three days a week. I, I don't know that that really is that effective. Are there any like absolute no-nos for the office? Like, is it that we should just be scrapping open plan offices entirely? We should be breaking down and hopefully there's not, I mean, there are unfortunately still a lot of these where you see like acres of open (laughs) floor plans with no partitions and no divisions and no acoustic treatment. We definitely should get rid of those. We should have spaces that are, you know, smaller. So, yes, you can still have open plan. It can work well for certain types of individuals and certain types of work, you know, people who are in, you know, newsrooms, often people in marketing, um, say they enjoy that environment, you know, they, they like to sort of talk you know, quite regularly to each other and the interruption, that flow is, is part of their work process. So I think it's about having smaller spaces with good acoustic treatment. So if you do have the marketing team without wanting to stereotype them, having these types of conversations and they're next to another team that perhaps is quite different, then that is not going to interrupt them because every time you get interrupted at work, it takes you 15 to 20 minutes to get back on task. And so if you think about how many times you're interrupted by someone on the phone or someone literally said to me today, I was sitting in the office in the open plan and four different people around me were having Zoom meetings with different people when there was a meeting room available, but it's just that's I'll just stay at my desk. I mean, you can't get any work done in that type of situation. So provide different spaces where people can actually, you know, do what they need to do. A couple of people this week have told me that, you know, they perceive that their jobs have just become doing emails and doing meetings. You know, just like my job is managing my inbox and then getting up and going to a meeting. What's your view on that? How could we overcome that? This is something that is a huge frustration. And in fact, I think a recent study showed that people would rather attend a doctor's appointment or jury duty for a good percentage of the workforce than actually attend a work meeting. So, you know, we waste a lot of time having meetings that we don't need to have, you know, having meetings about having other meetings. So what hasn't happened yet, there's been a lot of talk about what's happening with the office, what's happening with how much time we spend there. There hasn't been much talk about re-engineering the way that we do work because the volume of email is literally overwhelming. People are spending, you know, thousands of hours a year just managing, and it's not just email now, it's all of these platforms. So people we hear in the research saying, I've got 17 different platforms I have to use as part of my job every day, Um, whether it's a customer relationship management system, you've got Slack, you've got, you know, all of these things. And so... It's not making work more effective or more efficient. Uh, It's causing a lot of frustration and it makes your brain very, very tired. I don't know how you feel, Ellen and Bruce, when you're doing endless emails and back-to-back meetings, but it's it's cognitively draining uh, and and we're just doing far too much of it. As a researcher who's immersed in this, what are the big emergent questions for you, Libby? What are the things that the things you want research on, the data you want to explore? What what are the questions that we need to answer next? I think it's such an exciting opportunity because, you know, we've had the ability to do this for a long time. We've had the technology, but what was really blocking us was our mindset um, around, well, for whatever reason, we can't possibly do that. And then all of a sudden, you know, pretty much around the world overnight, 
companies and industries that you thought, well, they could never work from home were doing it. People were printing newspapers from their lounge rooms. You know, we had anchors of major US TV shows, you know, in their basement. And so the change, I think what we need to think about is what is our fixed thinking? How can we actually change that thinking? And how can we use that to our advantage? Because we're, we're seeing a declining um rates of labour participation, you know, people who are taking up the anti-work, you know, trend where they just, the lie flat movement. Um, so we're going to have less labour available. So the dynamics are not going to be there as they were in the past where there's a scarcity of um, jobs and there's too many people who want that job. So that that dynamic has, has changed significantly. So we aren't going to go back to the past. So what I'm interested in investigating is how can we make work more life-centred and more human-centred? And our environments and the way we structure that has so much more of an effect than we realise. A colleague of mine in the US did a study where he would put people into what we would call quite significant or inspiring buildings um, that, you know, they don't necessarily have to be religious type buildings, but very significant buildings. And just putting in, them in there and he put a mobile brain scanner on them, it automatically put them into a meditative state, which is quite remarkable when you think about it. So you didn't need to do yoga, you didn't need to sit there and try and meditate, which many people find very difficult to do, to switch off the voice in their head. But just being in these buildings actually created that outcome. And Jonas Selk, when he was developing the polio vaccine and couldn't figure out the issues that he was having, he actually used to go to the Basilica in Assisi and it said it helped him actually break through those problems he was having in developing um, developing the vaccine. So what I'm interested in is how we can make this transition to get out of this mindset that we have to kind of try and go back to the way things were how can we make it more life-centred? What if we could choose a whole range of different spaces across the city in the course of a day that would support the outcomes that we need to get, that would make us effective, that would keep us healthier mentally, physically, uh, you know, because that, those things are really significant issues. If we look at how many people are burnt out, if we look at loneliness in society, uh, all of these things, I think, and just how much work is creeping into the rest of our life and how many long hours we're all doing around the world. So I'm interested in, you know, let's really do something significant and start with that question. How can we make it more life-centred? I guess for a lot of us, so many of us are in a situation where, and I know middle managers get a, a bad rep, but, you know, we're more conscious about our chat icon going grey or us looking like we're not at our desk working. And I don't think many of us have got confidence that if we disappeared and went grey for, for three hours, our boss would understand that we were sitting in the basilica seeking <laughs> inspiration. Absolutely, because, you know, this is one of my pet hates is this idea that, we you know, we're going to monitor how many hours you're sitting on a computer and, and, you know, doing keystrokes because is that maybe if you're just doing pure data entry all day, maybe that's correlated with the outcomes you need for your job. But for a lot of our work, it's not that. Actually staring out the window is a really important process um, as part of creativity and innovation. It's a very non-conscious and iterative, you can't just put it on an agenda and say, Let, let's make that happen now. And this idea of FaceTime, you know, equating to 
I know you're working, you're under control. And if we look at a country like Japan, you know, they have such a notorious problem of overwork based on that FaceTime, based on the fact that you can never leave before your boss, that they're the only country in the world that has a legal definition for death by overwork, Karoshi. So they just work such long hours, they just drop dead uh, at work, which is absolutely horrendous. So, you know, we do need a big shift in mindset, but I think what I would say the research shows is that FaceTime doesn't work in terms of just watching people. That style of management, you know, theory X, that all employees are lazy, they're just looking to, you know, do as little as possible and sit down and watch Netflix all day. There are some employees, sure, who are not going to be performing, but that is not everybody. And we moved on from theory X decades ago to, you know, assuming that theory why employees are engaged, they do want to do a good job, they want meaning, they want purpose. Um, But autonomy is one of the biggest drivers of performance in a job, of satisfaction, of commitment to the organisation. And we've known this for decades with job design. And so it's just this leap of faith. We have this idea that we have to sort of get everyone in one room and, and watch them all day. But it wasn't working before the pandemic, Um, so it's sort of silly to think we should go back to that now. But managers need support, leaders need support. A lot of them haven't had any training in how to manage any other way, and that is significant. And the other thing, as you sort of alluded to, is the mindset that if this is the best way for me to work, um, then I assume that that's the only way to do it or the right way to do it. And we know that that isn't true either. So it, it requires support. It requires good change management. And I think that's where we're really lacking in companies at the moment. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Thank you to Libby. It's great to chat to her. I sort of really felt for the first time that these were things that I'd never considered that, you know, people might be overwhelmed, stressed, less productive by the noise and chaos of the office. Yeah, I loved uh, the way she talked about kind of when and how people work best. So, you know, in the afternoons, best maybe for creativity, in the mornings, best for deep work. It feels like where she was getting to was 
kind of combining some of the work Dan Pink had done around when. So when do we work best? But then combining that with physical location. And it just seems like she's got to something really interesting. And there's data now that she's got to something that we can look at and start to see, does it apply to our organization? What can we learn from this? What do we want to get rid of? Yeah, really fascinating stuff. Yeah, agree. It's nice to have actual data to back up my innate thought that probably open spaces and open plan offices are not great. So it's lovely to actually have evidence of that. I think also I was inspired by what she was saying about um, going into places that inspire awe, like going to cathedrals or going to a library. And I was like, that's great. Maybe I should just go there and do some writing, do some work there. I just found that so exciting. Yeah, I loved that. It's so easy to neglect that, isn't it? It's like every time I go to the Tate Modern and that sort of vast space, I don't know why. I don't, I, often I don't go and see a lot of art there. I just, I'm, I'm in that. And there's something about it that just is a mood enhancer. It transforms how you feel. It's, it's so completely right. Yeah, and I think about that often in terms of the, the learning environment. So we do a lot of virtual learning and great for inclusion. You can obviously access from all over the world brilliant for distributed teams but sometimes you've got half the people with their camera off not sure what they're up to perhaps the half that do have it on are on teams or on slack it's just not a great environment for learning and certainly when you get out into the real world even if you were just in someone's office you know it's not yet at that inspiring level but at least it's something different but then when you do elevate it, we were doing work with Punch Drunk, the immersive theatre company. When you start taking teams down to this mind-blowing, awe-inspiring, immersive world, yeah, it just completely elevates the experience. And I was just really interested to hear um, yeah, Libby talking about the effect that it has on your, um, your mood and the fact that it kind of calms you and just being in a different location the impact that that can have so yeah maybe we'll all be doing a, a learning in St Paul's in a couple of years time love it thanks so much to both of you for the conversation these these links to a couple of things that Ellen's written recently and these these links to everyone's uh, articles that we brought along today in the show notes thank you to Libby and uh, I'll see you next time see you soon Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.